didn't know what COVID would become. Um, we didn't know how long it would last. We didn't know how bad it would be. But it got but, exploited, right? But it got exploited, yeah, and, and, and there were lots of decisions that were made that ultimately pay people to remain out of the labor market. Like we need to, we need to, we need to get rid of those. Like, like just, just for instance, in Obamacare, two changes were made during the pandemic that are that are still current policy. One is that they they've yet to go back and do redeterminations for Medicaid. So if you were eligible for Medicaid a few years ago, regardless of what's happened to your income, you're still eligible for Medicaid. Two, they got rid of the cap on those Obamacare subsidies, the income cap on those Obamacare subsidies. So now, if you don't have access to private health insurance through your employer, regardless of your income, you get an Obamacare subsidy. We, we know for a fact that there are millionaires that are receiving Obamacare subsidies. It's, it's absurd. Yeah. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of American Potential. We've got a great series that we're going to talk to you about, about some really pressing and important issues. Now, with the U.S. national debt already over $34 trillion and another $5 trillion of new debt expected in 2025, how will that affect Americans? Are there any lessons we can learn from history showing how too much debt can affect a country. Well, today's guest is a history buff when it comes to economics, and one of his degrees is a Master of Science in Economics and Economic History from the London School of Economics and Political Science. He also holds a PhD in Economics from Queen's University Belfast and ABS in Economics from George Mason University. His research focuses on U.S. economic history, public finance, the political economy, the economics of media, and the economics of education. Paul is the author of The History and Future of the Budget Process in the United States, Budget by Fire. He has also served in the White House, the U.S. Senate, as well as think tanks. I want to welcome Paul Winfrey, uh, who is the president and CEO of Economic Policy Innovation Center in Washington, D.C. Paul, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, I never thought I'd have such a smart guy on this podcast. So I sound like a being... nerd. I don't know about you smart. Do... I sound like a real nerd there. You may have to prove that you're not a nerd. <laughs> prove to me that you're not a nerd, first and foremost. Uh, Why, what, what is there in your life that you can prove to me and say, hey, this shows I am not a nerd? You're stuck, Paul. I am. I, I'm, I'm completely stuck, stuck. Maybe I am a nerd. <laughs> Maybe Actually, I am. Maybe well, I am. Look, even if you are a nerd, the yeah. world needs nerds. Okay, yeah, so, I appreciate it. Uh, we need so we need some nerds to get us out of the problem that we're in. Sure. Okay, why were you so drawn to studying economics? A lot of people are like, man, economics. It's kind of boring. Tell yeah. me why you are fascinated by it. I had no idea what economics was until I was, I think, a almost a junior in college. Okay. Um, as uh, I mean, I think folks can can get sort of a sense of some of the other things that I've been interested in in the past. Um, I I'm a, I, history is honestly what I was drawn to in school. And um, one little known fact about me is that my very first job uh, ever was that I started when I was about eight years old. 
I was a Cooper's apprentice at Colonial Williamsburg, and I did that for about oh, really? ten, I did that for about ten years. They actually, helped pay for pay for college for oh, me. Oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah. Well, see, now that's not nerdy, is it? Uh, you could have yeah, used. That. I guess you I could. I could have used that. I could have used that. I'll have to put that in the back burner for next time. Um, but history is what I wanted to go 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 right. study. But but um, but history is not necessarily one of those things where if you go to college for you're not you may not get employed. Right. And I was always good at math. And so math was my first track, um, although I toyed with physics, and physics just wasn't for me. And uh, I started taking some economics classes when I was a junior um, at the encouragement of, of my dad, actually, and, and a couple of my roommates who were economics majors. And I, as, you, as you mentioned, I went to George Mason University, which is a phenomenal school to, right. to study economics. And um, so I, I caught, caught the bug, and uh, when I was a... A senior um, in in uh, in undergrad, I had a professor pull me aside and say, "What are you going to do with your life?" And I said, "I have no idea what I'm going to." <laughs> and he said, "Well, you're going to go to graduate school, like all those who who have no idea what they're going to do with their life." And uh, and so and so that's what I did, and um, and and here I am now. That was about 25 years ago at this point. Wow, that's great. Now you also worked at the White House, right? I did, yeah. So tell us what you did in the White House. Yeah. And then what was that like? Yeah. So I got to the White House because I worked on the 2016 presidential transition team. Okay. Um, so uh, there was a guy, his name's Ed Meese, who was um, uh, Reagan's uh, attorney general. An icon. An, an icon. icon, you an bet. An absolute icon in the conservative movement. Um, also worked in Reagan's White House, uh, who convinced me to come on and, and basically handle all of the budget stuff related to the Office of Management and Budget, which is a component of the executive office of the president. And, uh, and so I did that. And then when they were putting together teams to go into the White House in December of 2016, um, I uh, had in the past worked with um, some, some folks who were going into the, the administration. And they approached me and said, you know, do you wanna, do you wanna come you know, work, in the, work in the White House? And I mean, this is not a job that, you know, you don't get these jobs every, uh, offers every day. <laughs> right. And so uh, I went in as the uh, director of budget policy and deputy director of the Domestic Policy Council, which basically means that I was the number two in domestic policy for, for the whole administration. And so uh, another fun fact, as you mentioned, I worked in both Congress and in the White House. The very first time that I'd ever been in the White House was my very first day working in the White House. <laughs> I mean, obviously, working in the White House is special, right? Very sure. few people get to do that. Yeah. Frankly, not many people really get to work in Congress either, yeah, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I got to do that many years ago, and, and I always look very fondly on that. Oh, yeah. Let me ask you this. We'll divert from, from our storyline here for sure. a minute. Uh, I always would find myself walking through the Capitol, for instance, uh, walking down the steps right by the Statuary Hall, and I'd remind myself that Abraham Lincoln walked down those steps. Yeah. I mean, you just get this enormous oh, sense yeah. of, I guess, pride and yeah. that you're there, you're at the same place. Yeah. Tell me, did you, did you have moments like that, particularly maybe oh, even yeah. in the White House or the Capitol? Oh, yeah. I mean, as a history buff, you, you yeah. can't, you know, when you walk through, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a path that, that only staff or badge holders can take from the West Wing to the East Wing. And when you take that path, you see the scorch marks um, from when the White House was burned during the War of 1812. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's not on the tour. Um, <laughs> right. It's just, it's just, it just, it, it just slams you in the face. It's really, it's really quite cool. Uh, so, so no, I had, I had those same moments. Yeah. Okay. So now you've started the Economic Policy Innovation Center, yeah. EPIC, it's yep. called. That's right. Tell us about that. Yeah. 
So one of the things that we're trying to do with the Economic Policy and Innovation Center is essentially serve as a bridge between some of the larger, uh, more legacy think tanks like Mercatus and Cato and AEI, who have been generating all these great free market uh, pro-growth ideas for years and years. They're still doing this. Um, but because they specialize in these ideas about how, you know, that, that help guide policymakers on where we want to be in 10, 20, 30, 50, even 50 years out into the extreme long run, uh, they have become, and this is no criticism of, of these organizations, but they've become less interested in meeting members of Congress where they are and helping them deal with the challenges that are before them in the moment. And that's what Epic is doing, right? So we're working with those idea generators, um, but we're also looking exactly at what Congress is doing right now, what policymakers need to make the best decisions possible right now, and generating content and information and then connecting them with resources and experts to help them be able to make the best decisions possible. Yeah. Well, and that's that's so necessary. Let, let's talk a little bit about, about the, the budget deficit and our national debt. Yeah. That's something that American, your average American doesn't even think about it nope. in a day, right? Yeah. But it affects them every, each and every day. Sure. And the, the larger that national debt gets, the more it's, it's going to affect them. And there will be a day of reckoning at some point, yep. many days of reckoning coming. Yep. Why is it important for people to pay attention to that national debt? Yeah. Well, so first of all, it's, it's more of a recent phenomenon that people are pay less attention to the national debt. Right. Americans have always had this love-hate relationship with debt, right? Going mm -hmm. all the way back to the founding. And the love relationship came with the fact that you need debt in order to do things like fight wars and expand, right? right. At the same time, they hated debt because it stood for things like public corruption. They saw too many instances where politicians were issuing debt to then enrich themselves and enrich their buddies. And, and one of the things that we have seen happen just within the last 40 years is that there has been a breakdown in that, in part because people are less likely to see the effects of debt in their everyday lives than they once, than they once were. Now, that's changing, and we talk about that you know, more if, if you would like to. Um, but, you know, like, like, for instance, when I go talk to you know, folks who grew up in the 60s and the 70s, like they, they inherently know what high rates of inflation and high interest rates and right. debt does to the economy. Um, you know, you talk to people who are in their 30s and 40s or even younger than that, and they just they haven't had that they haven't had that same experience. Right. Um, now, like I said, that's changing right now, um, but uh, but it takes time to 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 learn to learn those lessons. Yeah. Well, and you talk about that the history of that. You know, I think of the 19, late 1970s and, you know, right into the beginning of the 80s, you know, the long gas lines, the yep. mortgage rates, I think were around 20% yep. right there, some of the mortgage interest rates. That's right. Um, and we had this long string recently of 3 and 4% interest rates. So now when they're up, you know, 7, 8, or 9, that's that's painful, but it's not as painful as it can get. No. Um, so we have we are to some degree a victim of our own prosperity would we you are. agree as a yeah. as a country no 100 percent, we are yeah. yeah yeah so how do we get people to understand how important that is what's the education effort that we need to have and and how how do we reach people on that issue well 
I don't know that you reach them outside of connecting education to experience. And right now they're experiencing the effects of debt and all of the overspending that this government has engaged in right. since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it, there is a direct connection with the overspending and the inflation that we've seen over the last yeah. few years. And we're getting to this point where, you know, like we, we are right now, we are going to roll over that is refinance more federal debt in the next 12 months than existed in all of federal debt during the Obama years. Like that's absolutely incredible, right? And we're gonna be rolling them over at even higher interest rates than have existed for the last 15 years. So that has that has real world real world costs, right? We're 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 going to soon be spending more on interest costs than we will on national defense. Right now, we already spend more than we do on, say, the, the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, like the, the, these 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 like I said, experience is um, is, uh, is 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 most of the education, and then we just have to help connect those dots and say, hey, look, like the reason why you're seeing these effects come out today is because of, again, all of the overspending that we've engaged in over yeah. the last couple of years. And that should scare people when you talk about we're spending more on debt than we are on the U.S. Army, yeah. um, because we look at what our framers created in a federal government. I mean, that is the, the Army, the Navy, our military. That's one of the core functions of the federal government. Right. We've kind of got out out of uh, out of kilter with all the things that the federal government does. Let's let's go back to inflation just a minute, though. You, you talked about inflation. Yeah, we have to be clear. The driver of inflation is government spending, right? right. I mean, that is what money causes inflation. Inf- yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I can't just go create money. No, the the state of California or the state of Nevada can't just go create more money, but the federal government can, and yeah. that is the driver that is causing this pain right now, right? Coming out of the banking crisis in 08 and 09, the Federal Reserve has also invented all of these other ways to, to create even even more money. It used to be that they would actually have to print it and then in, in the very old days and actually connect it to some commodity like gold or, or, or something else altogether. Yeah. Um, now there's no there's no tether there. Uh, while, while at the same time, you know, most of the money that banks have as deposits isn't actual money. Most of it's actually debt. Uh, and a lot of that is actually treasuries. It's actually mm-hmm. treasury debt. Who owns most of our debt as a country? Do you know? We actually own most of our debt. Uh, and one of the things that, but um, one of the things that we have seen what, happen. What do you mean when you say we? Who's we? The American people. So citizens of the United States. Citizens of okay. the United States uh, own most of our Through debt. Through buying bonds. Through buying bonds. Right. Um, uh, or if you have a retirement account, uh, right. most of the, you know, oftentimes those retirement accounts will invest our pension funds. They will invest in in, in government debt. Um, banks, uh, if you have a bank account, most of the time your bank will have invested in in, in government bonds. Um, but one of the things that we have seen over the last, you know, really twelve months, but twenty four months, is that there has been a systematic stepping back um, from big institutional investors from buying U.S. debt, as well as foreign investors, which is one of the reasons why interest rates on government bonds have been going up because they've had to charge higher or they've had to give higher prices um, or higher rates in order to get normal folks so to free buy markets the debt. Work. So free markets work, right? If free there aren't as many people work, who yeah. want to buy right. those bonds or other countries right. or citizens, then right. they have to raise the rates, make it more attractive. That's right. Wow. That's exactly. How that it works, is. It, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me talk about the fiscal cliff. What's sure. the fiscal cliff? 
So the, fis- <clears throat> the fiscal cliff is, so there is a gap between what is current policy and what is current law. And there are a bunch of things within the economy that the federal government has been doing since the beginning of the pandemic, but really going back all the way to 2017, that all expire at the same time. That includes the individual components of the 2017 tax bill. Mm-hmm. So all of the business stuff, well, all of the large business stuff. These that, are the Trump that tax cuts. Is a, these are Trump tax cuts. Yep. That's all permanent. Okay. The small business tax cuts, those expire. They're actually in the process of expiring right now. They completely go away at the end of 2025, as do all of the individual tax cuts. So if nothing happens, people's taxes will go up. The average person's taxes will go up by about 7 to 8%. The other thing that's happening is that all of these COVID era policies are also all expiring at the same time. The GDP numbers came out for uh, last year from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, and a third of the annualized growth that occurred in 2023 was because of higher federal and state uh, spending. Now that's unsustainable, that's a sugar high, right? Yeah. Well, if all of that goes away, at the same time that the tax cut expirations kick in, at the same time that all of our, you know, the prices that we pay for goods have all gone up by 20% over the last few years, we're dealing with a with a cliff, a fiscal cliff of about, depending on how you measure it, five to six and a half trillion dollars that all kicks in between 2025 and 2026. So what's going to happen is that all the special interest groups are going to descend upon Washington, D.C., and they're going to say, let's keep it going. Right, let's keep the sugar high moving along. And I think that we we can't afford that. But we also can't afford people's taxes to go up. Right. And we shouldn't expect them to because they're already paying higher prices. Right. So we need a, a plan to deal with this, plan to deal with the debt. Yeah. Uh, so what should that plan be? Uh, I think that you need to start by taking a holistic look at what the government does. And one of the things that it has done is it has overspent on COVID. I was just having a, a conversation with some, uh, some 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 international folks a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was telling them about how there's still about 135 billion dollars in unspent COVID money in states and local government coffers, and they were flabbergasted. They're like, wait a minute, there's 130. That's that's more than Russia spends on its military, <laughs> and it's and it because right. of COVID. When did the <clears throat> pandemic end? Right, right. Like that's that's unbelievable. Yeah, it right, is. right. Sure. So I think that, you know, you start with the low-hanging fruit. You claw that back. You don't allow people to spend that money out. The pandemic's over. We need to move on, guys. Uh, and how much is that? About $135 billion. $135 billion. Wow. Yeah, $135 okay. billion. And then I think the second thing that you do is that you have to start by, by doing everything that you can to grow the economy, right? So, you know, I have, I have lots of friends and I, out there, and I, 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 I they're, they're, Good, good-natured, and they're they're budget nerds just like myself, um, and they look at the federal budget and they say the drivers of of the of our of our mess are the entitlement programs, the Social Security, it's Medicare, it's Medicaid, it's all that stuff. I say you're exactly right. I completely agree with you. At the same time, the average American voter, in particular, knows that there is a massive amount of waste. Sure. Right. Like not just all of this COVID spending that needs to get right. clawed back, right? That they're spending on, you know, uh, so like, for instance, my team went and looked at this and we found that uh, that one t- town outside of, Il- outside of Chicago, Illinois, uh, used some of their COVID money to put in industrial showers so that they could wash the elephants when the circus comes to town. 
I mean, oh. is this really? Is this is this what we should? Yeah, I right. mean, this is unbelievable, it right? It's unreal. It's yeah. un, it's it's unreal. I mean, they're 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 putting in sprinkler systems and golf courses and building pools and and doing all of this stuff that they literally should not be doing. Sure. Um, we need to claw all that back. We you need you need to start by looking at a, a holistic government approach, and you also need to start by growing the economy. How can we deregulate? Right? Mm -hmm. How can we increase labor force participation? Labor force participation is at an all time low. Uh, Epic put out a report uh, about a week and a half ago um, that uh, folks can find on our website that looks at the breakdown of different demographic groups and how and who is working more than they were working before the pandemic and who's working less than they're working before the pandemic. And we found something that's really interesting. And that is, is that, you know, older folks are, are working less, but you would expect that they're retiring, right? Lots of folks took the took COVID as an opportunity to, to exit the labor market. Um, Every demographic group except for one is actually working at rates higher today than they were before the pandemic, including moms with kids, including moms with small kids. That is, is uh, 20, uh, 20 somethings without children. 20 somethings mm -hmm. without children are going to college and uh, two year institutions at lower rates than they've ever than ever. And uh, and they're also uh, they're also not they're not working at the rates that they were before the pandemic started. And this is a real problem for lots of different reasons. I mean, you know, that I think are apparent probably to the listeners, um, but namely that your success, long term success in the labor market, is so dependent on those early starts. Right. You know, getting a job right out of school and and starting to make a little bit of money and getting those small promotions that lead to bigger promotions. If if something derails that, it can take 10, 20 years to get back to get back on track. So we need to do everything that we can to deal with those labor market outcomes. And that'll increase economic growth, bring in more revenue, and make this problem that we're talking about a smaller one to fix. Right. You know, I think uh, we've got to make sure that people connect these thoughts and ideas. And as I was asking the question of how do we connect people to the debt. Uh, I thought, how do we connect it to their life, right? Yeah. How do you connect that to a single mom somewhere who has to make the choice, right? That, yeah. That's a tougher choice today than it was four or five years ago yeah. because of the because of the debt, because of the inflation yeah. that, that has been driven. How, I, again, this is, has a real-world impact, I think, on individuals. But as we hit this fiscal cliff, that's going to accelerate. I mean, it's going to have an even greater impact on individuals, right? I think so. I think so. And one of the things that we have seen happen just since the beginning of COVID, and again, like, the, you know, the I'm, I, I'm not finding fault with the decisions of policymakers at the moment. We didn't know what COVID would become. Um, we didn't know how long it would last. We didn't know how bad it would be. But it got but, exploited, right? But it got exploited. Yeah, right. and, and, and there were lots of decisions that were made that ultimately pay people to remain out of the labor market. Mm -hmm. Like we need to, we need to, we need to get rid of those. Like, like just, just for instance, um, in Obamacare, there are, there were two main healthcare expansions. One was a big Medicaid expansion and states that expanded right. Medicaid. And the second were these Obamacare subsidies. Two changes were made during the pandemic that are, that are still current policy. One is that they, they've yet to go back and do redeterminations for Medicaid. So if you were eligible for Medicaid a few years ago, regardless of what's happened to your income, you're still eligible for Medicaid. Two, they got rid of the cap on those Obamacare subsidies, the income cap on those Obamacare subsidies. 
So now, if you don't have access to private health insurance through your employer, regardless of your income, you get an Obamacare subsidy. We, we know for a fact that there are millionaires that are receiving Obamacare subsidies. Wow. It's, it's absurd, yeah, right? It is. So sure. this is just little stuff that, again, can, can, can get clawed back and I think ultimately helps you deal with you know, not just our immediate challenges, but, but, but the long-run challenges because you're showing voters, you're showing the American public that uh, that you're willing to make these you know small you know nickel and dime decisions that ultimately add up to dollars, um, you know, but but the, that start us moving on a path to reform of some of the larger problems too, and that is the, obviously the entitlements. Yeah, and that's what you're doing, right? Oh, yeah. Through your work at Epic is coming up with those policy proposals. You're getting those over to members of Congress and others to try and help get them enacted, right? Oh, yeah. And we're not just doing it in an idea, you know, sort of sense. So, like, for instance, the Biden administration uh, put out a rule uh, on the Monday before Thanksgiving of last year that allows, it changes the definition of an obligation. This is all like DC talk, but it, it, you know, legalese. Nerd stuff. Nerd stuff. Yeah. But it changes, yeah, it it changes the definition of an obligation so that states and local governments can protect these co- this COVID money. And then on the back end, I don't know if folks saw this, but the guy who was in the White House who was in charge of distributing this money is now on the Biden campaign. On the back end, they're going to these state and local governments and they're saying, spend the money out and thank the administration, right? I mean, basically they're turning this COVID money into a slush fund. And if you were to be really cynical, a campaign slush fund, sure. right? right? And so one of the things that my organization is doing is that we worked with uh, about 40 members of the House of Representatives and about 10 members of the Senate to uh, to 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 write a, um, a, uh, a letter to the Treasury Department saying that that you don't have the ability to do to do this rule. And there are lots of problems that we found with the process for how you you went about promulgating this rule. Now that's important because now Treasury has to respond to that. They are legally compelled to respond to that, which slows down slows down the process. This is all like blocking and tackling stuff. Right. And then on February first, a uh, a Congressional Review Act will be issued by the by the Senate, and they'll have to take a vote on retracting that rule one way or one way or another. And so we're 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 not just saying this is a problem and somebody should do something about it but we're actually coming up with things that Congress can do right. in the moment and actually giving it to them and saying, here's the letter, put your name on it and, and go forth and conquer. Sure. And then we're coming in on the back end and helping them and supporting them. Yeah. You talked about all the people that descend on Washington, all the special interests. And that's, that's what I love about Epic and what you're doing is you're, you're the counter to that, right? You're, yeah. You're there for the taxpayer, for the citizen, not, yeah. you're not there to try and, you know, get something uh, that, that all these other groups are, out there getting what happens if nothing's done to reduce the debt and just keeps going at the rate that it's going well i put out a paper uh this is again it's going to sound like a nerd thing but you folks should go check it out and it was uh, it was published uh, not actually by epic because i wrote it before i started epic uh it was published by the paragon health institute which is another one of our um uh another allied organization uh, a guy named brian blaze who worked with me in the white house runs mm-hmm. paragon he's a great guy and you should 100 have him on your podcast and um and what I what I I was what I was frustrated with before I wrote this paper was that you know nerds keep saying people have said for a long time that if we don't do something 
something bad's going to happen. Right. Nobody really says what that bad thing is. Right. And so what I did is I took a step back and asked the economics literature, well, has anyone, are there any tools that we can use to try to figure out what those bad things are? And then to also try to put a timeline on this. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, there is. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are models that the IMF uses that they that they apply on um, most of the people who they give loans to to figure out whether or not they're they're worth giving loans to, mm -hmm. whether or not they can pay them off in the future. And I applied those same uh, principles and strategies and models to the U.S. debt. And I found that if we don't do something um, in the next 45 to 50 years, then we will run out of borrowing capacity. And what that means is that when we have recessions, wars, pandemics, whatever, when we need to borrow more money than we're than we when we're already scheduled to borrow, we, we won't be able to do it, right? People will not lend us the money. Like we won't lend ourselves money. We will not be credible partners anymore. The federal government won't be credible partners right. with its citizens. But the reality to that is, is that people will know that well in advance. So we don't have to wait 45 or 50 years. People in say 25 to 30 years will say, hey, wait a minute here. Maybe I shouldn't invest in U.S. Treasuries. Mm -hmm. And those rates will go up and up and up and up, which will make the debt unsustainable because our main strategy to roll out, to uh, deal with debt management is to roll it over, to refinance it, or float it overseas, get get uh, foreigners to pay, foreign investors to pay for it. And uh, we will no longer be able to do that. So I, th I think, I think I, something's coming, right? Um, the markets will 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 uh, will send us a signal soon, and I think we're starting to. I honestly think we're starting to see it right now. So if you go talk to the big institutional players right now, they'll tell you, you know, the reason why I haven't bought as much debt over the last few years isn't because I'm betting against the United States. It's because I know that you're going to ask me. The Treasury Department is going to ask me to buy more debt in a few years, and hmm. so why would I bet buy debt at four? you know, and half percent interest rates when I, I know that I can, you know, I can wait out for six, seven, eight percent in two, three years. Right. Right. Sure. Well, if they're waiting out on six, seven, eight percent interest rates and we're rolling over, you know, $10 trillion a year of our $34 trillion, like at some point the math ain't going to add yeah, up. Right. 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 Sure. And those institutional investors are going to go, oh, wait a minute. You, you guys actually need to get your fiscal house in order. And that's exactly why the, the three main credit rating agencies uh, have come out in the last few years and said, hey, it's not just congressional dysfunction that we're worried about, but it's the fact that there's no long-term plan to deal with your medium-term term challenges. And uh, so I think the markets, the markets will respond. Now, the and now you've gotten me on my soapbox, so I'm <laughs> filibustering a bit here. But, it's all right. But- but the, the problem with that is that we won't know when the markets will flip on the U.S. until they've flipped. So it'll be just like the 2008-2009 financial crisis where we'll all wake up on a Monday, the world will be normal, and everything will be hunky-dory. And then on Wednesday, all of a sudden, the, the bond markets go bonkers and Congress will have to do something. And the Secretary of Treasury will descend upon Congress and say, Tomorrow, I need a credible plan from you to get debt under control. And at that point, things become draconian. Right now, we're not there yet. Things don't have to be draconian. We're just talking about reducing the growth rate in debt. Right. At some point, they're going to ask for an actual reduction in the debt right. level. 
Right. What you're talking about now reminds me of, and tell me if it's similar to yeah. the austerity measures in Greece yeah. that were implemented. I mean, there is a point at which you simply can't continue to borrow, right? And that's what you're talking about. That's so you right. Have, reality kicks in. Yep. And uh, it's it's like any of us who have a credit card, uh, you know, we can do it for a while, but there comes a point where it's like, I just I can't do this anymore. Got to reduce my debt. It's a it's a much longer time. It's a, it's a much longer runway for a country, the greatest country in the world that, mm -hmm. that has so much success. Uh, but there is a date out there and, and we're heading towards that. Um, the impact then on pensions, let's talk about what happened to Greece through the austerity measures. I mean, people really, the citizens felt the pain of that, didn't they? 100%. That's right. And Greece didn't have something that we have, right, which is another market signal. And that is, is that they were on the euro. Right. They right. weren't printing their own currencies. We we can we can print money, right? And so Or we cannot print money. Or we cannot print money. That's <laughs> right. exact that's exactly yeah. right. And so this isn't a decision that it's not a it's not about whether or not something will or won't happen. It's about will this be a monetary policy crisis and and will that be our market signal or will it be a fiscal policy crisis, right? So will the bond markets respond or will you know, the, 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 the Fed just have to continue printing money to, mm -hmm. to, to, to make up for, for, what, um, for what the Treasury Department is doing. Right. So if you were a member of Congress or you were the President of the United States, what would you do? What would you do tomorrow if you could to get this turned around? Obviously, claw back some of the spending that we're doing to pre-COVID levels, right? Yep. Claw back that money that, co that COVID's had out there. But what else? I think... You need a credible plan to tell folks on the outside that you're not going to issue as much debt in the future, mm -hmm. right? Again, it, this isn't about, you know, cutting Medicare benefits and, you know, pushing granny off the cliff, yeah, like, right. you know, they, you know sure. the Democrats blamed Paul Ryan for, you know, right. a decade ago. Um, but you need some way to say credibly, you know, we know that debt is a problem. We know that these interest costs are 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 becoming out of control under the CBO baseline. Get this, under the CBO baseline, if taxes go up and spending naturally goes down, this fiscal cliff doesn't happen, right? And we have no recessions, no wars, zero wars, uh, no pandemics, no nothing bad, nothing bad happens for the next 10 years, interest on the debt will be about $1.5 trillion a year, wow. right? So you need to send some credible signal that that won't, be the case, which means bending, bending the curve, bending the cost curve. And there are lots of things that can be done. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a budget sort of high level, you know, um, per guy, but you know, so I, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but there are lots of things that can be done, uh, that say both improve the Medicare program and reduce Medicare spending. Right. So, I mean, Medicare, Medicare is, it's great. It is absolutely, I mean, you've talked to doctors, like it's absolutely bonkers how the Medicare program is run, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's bonkers how they pay for things and just making reforms around the margin. We've gotten to the point where, you know, we can start pull, pulling some of that stuff back. Uh, another thing, this is something that um, that came up uh, about 15 years ago uh, in Medicaid. So there is this, there's this scam that states run, everyone knows about it where basically what they do is, is that they charge higher taxes for certain things under the Medicaid program that they then bill the federal government for. 
they then get a reimbursement back, and then they split the cost of the tax with the hospitals. Okay, it's called the Medicaid. It's called a Medicaid provider tax okay. scam. Um, when uh, in 2011, when there was this impasse over the debt limit, there was one of these fiscal commissions that comes up every like 15 years or so, 10 to 15 years or so. Yeah. And it was being uh, it was being co-led by um, the majority leader at the time, a guy named Eric Cantor, and uh, another unknown guy named Joe Biden. And um, <laughs> Joe Biden called this a scam. He said, "Guys, if we can't do something about this Medicaid provider tax, like what are we doing here? Come on, like this is absolutely ridiculous. Right. Getting rid of the Medicaid provider tax would save half a trillion dollars over ten years. That's how much money is being." Wow. filtered away from the federal taxpayer to go to state co- coffers and they're not spending it on healthcare. That's the crazy thing. They're spending it on, you know, doing things like uh, putting again, new sprinkler systems in front of, you know, the state house and, uh, and, and, and improving capital in that ways. And, and maybe, maybe right. That reduces the burden on state taxpayers to, you know, to do things that the state and local governments would otherwise do, but it disconnects, the local voter from local decisions, yeah, right? By running it sure. through the federal government, it's breaking down fiscal federalism, which you know, you know, really is is how our is 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 a, is a sort of a fundamental practice of our country. Yeah. So we have, you know, I think there are lots of people in Washington who look at the crisis that we're in. I think right now and say yeah. it's just so big, I don't know how to even begin. I don't know how to start. Um, honestly. Let's talk about what happens year after year, the increase. Uh, we, I mean, the budgets of every federal agency increase, yeah. it seems, every year, right? That's right. Um, and, of course, if you try and cut from a 9% increase to a 5% increase, they say that you're cutting. Yeah. I mean, it's Washington speak. Yeah. The federal government spends more every single year than it did the previous year for how many years now? I mean, it's it's just been every year. decades, right? <laughs> every I mean, year, yeah. yeah. Every um, year, yeah. So even if we just, what if we, what if we just capped that and said you're going to make for the next five years the federal government's not going to have any increases in any budgets. It's going to you're going to spend the same. We're going to freeze it at twenty twenty three levels. Let's say, yeah. What what would that? Do? I mean, that it is in and of itself would make a gigantic difference, wouldn't it? Even it would, though, ma- it would make I mean, a gigantic yeah. difference. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I was once told by somebody was, you know. Um, who works in the space on the Hill is that they said, you know, one of the problems is that Republican members and staff think about those sort of base spending levels, right? Mm -hmm. How much is the federal government spending on itself at, you know, at a basic level every year, right? And they're trying to limit it. At the same time, the Democrats, they, they care about that. They care about those fights, but they're, they, they, they put um, more energy into these things called supplementals. We often think of them as emergencies, right? Mm-hmm. Right now, there's a, it, this, is, this is what they're debating within the Senate, this, uh, this budget supplemental yeah. that would deal with Ukraine and, and um, in the border. Um, but it also would deal with a whole lot of other stuff. And the reason why the, uh, the, the Democrats, it's not just Democrats, the big spenders in Congress, put so much energy in the supplemental is because that's all the new stuff. Right. It's the stuff that I can say, I can go back to my constituents and say, I got $150 billion supplemental this year, and it's all of this great stuff that is tracked tra- 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 right back to me, not my predecessors. And so when you talk about limiting what the government's spending, 
it's got to include all that stuff. Right. It's got to include what it spends on its basic functions that you know Congress has said, you know that it that it it needed to do ten years ago, and also all of the additional stuff. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and that that emergency bucket is just becoming larger and larger. I mean, as a matter of fact, I think. One of my colleagues at uh, at Cato went and looked at all of the supplemental, and I, I could be getting the numbers here wrong, but I think she went back, or Romina Baccia went back and looked at all of the these budget supplementals going back to 1980 and found that some we spent like something like $17 trillion on these budget supplementals it's over amazing. that over the last 40 years. Right. So you got to get control of all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And and some of that is like just returning Congress to regular order, right? Yeah, like yeah. stop having these bills at the end where we've got to, you know, have a they essentially have a, a a gun held to their head as Congress and say you have oh, yeah. to do it now. Oh, yeah. um, how about if we return to pre-COVID le- spending levels? Yeah, clawed everything back and said this is what the federal government was spending before COVID hit. What what would that what the would the impact there be on on the debt? I mean, I would assume that would be a gigantic. Uh, uh, leap back uh, forward. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in the most recent numbers I saw on this, I mean, I think it would save something like $3 trillion over 10 years or $3.5 trillion over 10 years. So it would be a massive, I mean, think about it. That's the size of the tax increase that's going yeah. into effect next year. Well, and aren't we scheduled this year to add $5 trillion, I think, to the national debt in, yeah. in this year? Yeah. So that would be, I mean, that's over several years, but that's a third or, you know, three-fifths, I guess, of the uh, uh, of that so that would make a gigantic difference. Yeah, make a gigantic that. difference. What about then going back, and obviously we need to do this as a country, re-examine you know, a constitutional republic. And sure. what is the role of the federal government? You know, yeah. I think the federal government's doing all sorts of things that it shouldn't be doing right now. Yes. Um, that would make a, an enormous difference for sure if we did that. Do you, do you see the possibility of us doing that, or do we have to hit the crisis moment before we have those kinds of examinations. Oh, I think we might have to get some signals before we have those kind of re-examinations. But I do think that there are little things that we can do with right leadership in the meantime. Um, so zero-based budgeting, something that lots of businesses do. I mean, right. Folks have likely heard of that. Um, it's nowhere within the federal and that's, government. And that explains zero-based budgeting so people don't... Zero-based budgeting is basically you start from the ground level and build up. You rather start than with nothing. You start with nothing and right. you figure out whether or not you need it. And if you don't need it next year, you get rid right. of it or you pre-program yeah. it. Um, the way that the federal government budgets is that it starts with last year and just assumes that all of that's going to continue. And there's a budget component of that that doesn't make sense. But there's also a... A, um, a, uh, a programmatic component of that that doesn't make sense because basically what we, what, like what, for instance, right, let's take NASA, okay? NASA is an agency that, um, uh, I mean, you might disagree with me here, but I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of NASA. I think that, that NASA in some, some way, shape, or form should exist. Um, and, uh, but the way that, that they have grown over the years is one in which when when new members of Congress come around and think about new things that NASA should be doing, many of which NASA should not be doing, um, like studying climate change and all this stuff right. that's just outside of their bailiwick, um, what they do, rather than reprogram existing resources, they just give them new resources, right? And so there are people at NASA who are doing things that members of Congress who are long dead you know, told them to go do, right. that, and these things should not be done anymore. And it's like that at every agency. 
Yeah. Every, every single one. Yeah. And unless you start with a zero-based budgeting, you know, mentality or process, you're you're not going to have the methods to to uh, to to just kind of root out what those things are, and ultimately to to deal with them and make the government more efficient. Right. And it's especially that is especially needed in government, right? Because oh, in yeah. business, it's about making a profit. You've always got that in the back of your mind yeah. um, and you're accountable to shareholders, but in yeah. government, you're not. And so zero-based budgeting in government is is essential to really rooting out those old programs that maybe don't deserve to still be around. Yeah. Let me give you another crazy yeah. thing that's that's been going on over the last few years. And this is just becoming a bigger deal. And that is, is that it's standard practice. I mean, you, I, you just you you clicked some things in my brain when you okay. said businesses. Yeah, it's standard practice in government or the federal government that when Congress appropriates money for a program, when they give money for a program, that they reserve one to two percent of the total budget for that program for administration. And when you're dealing with small programs where th- that are administratively heavy, that makes sense. But one of the things that happened during COVID is is that we created big programs that are not administratively heavy, that are basically just federal bureaucrats cutting checks to the private sector or to state and local governments to then go do things. Well, these agencies are flush with cash. I mean, like like billions of dollars, like tens of billions of dollars. And they can't spend them outside of program administration without congressional approval. And so they've started to descend upon Congress to ask for that approval, right? Wow. And Congress, because they, they might not be equipped to, to, to handle these sorts of things, is inclined most of the time to just give it to them, right? But what they're doing with that money is they're, 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 they're basically doing things that as either unauthorized, and most of the government is unauthorized, or that you don't want them to do, right? Because if, if, if they... If, uh, if, if they had to be above the board with everything and defend it, like a zero-based budgeting proposal would require them to do, well, then it might be embarrassing, right, for sure. them to, to, do, to do so. so. Yeah. Wow. So, and those are the great things that Epic is yeah. doing, right, is yeah. coming up with those kinds of, sure. those kinds of ideas. Um, I guess last thing I'd ask you yeah. is I think people, the American people are frustrated because yeah. this has been going on their whole life. Yep. Right. There's been debt. When's the last time? I'm trying to remember. Didn't we have a surplus at one year in the Clinton administration when there was Republican-controlled Congress? We had a slight budget surplus. Is that, am I right on that? Yeah, and it was only because Social Security revenue was higher than expected. Yes. If you, t- okay. if you, if you take that away, then we had no surplus. Yeah, and I would also argue because there was divided government yeah. and they were at loggerheads and yep. couldn't come to agreement. So, um, okay, so people are frustrated by that. They have been told that like Republicans are more fiscally responsible than Democrats. Yeah. But the reality in a lot of cases is they're just for different programs or for spending money on different things. That's right. But they're still for uh, massive spending. That's right. H- how, how do we get out? I mean, I'm, I know you're a historian. You're not a politician. You, you know, you're not a, maybe a legislative tactician necessarily, but how do we get how do we get out of this how do we get to a point where the american people trust either a political party or leaders to be truthful on this issue and finally address it so uh, i wrote a book a couple of years ago and one of the things that i talk about in that book is that every major budget process change that's occurred to our through our history going all the way back to 1790 up to 
the 1970s, which is when the last sort of big budget process change happened with the Congressional Budget Act. Every single one of them came after the public getting frustrated with the public corruption that was going on. Every single one of them. They were frustrated with how they saw their elected representatives uh, misappropriating and abusing public resources, mm -hmm. and they demanded change. And in every single one of those cases, the politicians did not want to make the changes, right? So we have this, uh, in a couple of weeks, the president's going to release the, pre the president's budget. That dates back to this thing called the um, Budget and Accounting Act of 1921, which created that process. It also created this entity called the Government Accountability Office, which audits the government's books. Congress fought the creation of that law for 10 years before finally being turned by the public. Basically, the public said, no more. You've got to do something, mm -hmm. right? And what's happened, again, since the 1970s, is that there's been a, there's, we haven't had one of those, one of those, those moments. Um, but we did have one in, in, the, in the 1970s. The other thing that's happened, and, and, and actually two other things that, that have happened that I'm really concerned about, actually, and this is more cultural, is that it used to be the case that there was more agreement on where we should be going as a country and what economic policy writ large should be doing, mm -hmm. right? It used to be that, I mean, if you go read Jimmy Carter's speeches and Ronald Reagan's speeches, they both say basically the same thing. We need more growth, more productivity, lower unemployment, and stable prices, right? Those were the core motives of economic policy. Today, if you go to the average member of Congress and you say, well, what, 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 is, what should economic policy be doing? You get all sorts of answers, right? If you go to the extreme left, they say it should be dealing with systemic racism and climate change. If you go to the extreme right, they, should, they might say it should be um, encouraging people to have more children and you know, cutting taxes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I have no problem with people having more children and cutting taxes, and I hope that the world doesn't warm too much for us. Um, but that's not the core aim of economic policy. And as we've become sort of, you know, uh, detethered from those core aims, uh, we're, we're, we can't measure whether or not we're, 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 we're having any success, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's, that leads to massive amounts of disagreement amongst both policymakers, but also amongst the public about what it is that the federal government should be doing, right? Mm -hmm. So this gets back to, I think, you know, this question that you, you raised a few minutes ago of, do we need to have a national conversation about what does the federal government do? What do state and local governments do? And then what, are your, what, what, should, we be, what should we be expecting out of families and communities? Yes, 100%. We need to have that conversation again. And and I think we need to do that do that you know routinely. And then my last point is and this is another thing that's broken down is that it used to be the case that when stuff happened members of Congress and in the White House policymakers responded to stuff, right? The Civil War and I, I write about this in my book the Civil War was tough on American finances. Lincoln didn't know what to do. His Treasury Secretary, Secretary Chase, didn't, didn't know what to do, right? But they problem solved in the moment, and they came up with solutions, and they were flexible. And we've seen that, again, throughout in our entire history. Something's happened in the last 20 years 
where policymakers are are not as flexible as they once were. And I think that if you talk to some of the folks who you know used to be in Congress but are no longer in Congress, like Jeb Hensarling or Pat Toomey or Paul Ryan, one of the things that they'll tell you is not to put words in their mouth, but one of the things that they might tell you is that you know it used to be that you know you 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 were elected and you wanted to learn your job so that you could be an effective policymaker to solve some of these bigger challenges. And now we've got lots of members of Congress who, you know, they'd just rather take to Twitter and beat each other up and, you know, from their, you know, bully pulpits like we see from the White House. And mm-hmm. and that's not productive. It is, it's not productive to, to being able to deal with the challenges that are before us. And I think that, again, that comes back to sort of a cultural solution. But as a, as a, as a country, like we need to demand and expect more out of our elected representatives and say, no, y'all, y'all got sent to Washington to work, learn your jobs and work, yeah. solve these challenges. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Um, you mentioned something that, that was very intriguing to me. I, I agree with that. Uh, it, it does seem, you know, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan had the same, the same end goal yeah. in mind. I'm not sure we, if you got, as you said, several members of Congress that they would agree on the end goal and what it should look like. And I guess that's the divisive nature of, of our policies and our politics. Yeah, you, uh, you also take, you take Reagan, right? Right. Reagan, you know, lots of people I think have, uh, have re- rewritten their own histories around Reagan. Right. You know, the supply siders have said, oh, he's a big tax cutter and, yeah. you know, and, and, um, but the, in the defense hawks have said the same thing in their regard. But the interesting thing about Reagan, when I look at Reagan as a, as an economic historian, kind of stepping yeah. back and, and, um, is that Reagan did two things. First thing that he did is he looked at the seventies and he said, that's not working. Yeah, we right. need to do something else. Right, right. Right. And then the second thing that he did is he had a lot of people from a lot of different camps. He had a big movement, big tent, right? who had very different opinions about how the economy worked and what the role of treasury or the budget or the defense department or whatever should be. And he brought them all under this, this, this federalism tent. And he basically said, okay, you all might disagree on what the mechanisms between, you know, debt and economic growth might be, but you can all agree we should have less of it. Right. You should all agree that we should kick more power to the states. Right. You should all agree that we should reduce regulation. They say, yeah, we can all agree on that. We just disagree on the mechanisms for how, like, why that's good. Right. They say, okay, well, why don't we do that? Because that's not what we were doing during the 70s. Sure. And when when I look at what we need in, uh, you know, in, in presidential leadership in the future, we, and not to say that we need Reagan, because Reagan was for his time, but we need somebody who can do the same sort of thing, Right. Who can say, look, I'm, I, I, first of all, I'm trying to build a big, a big tent here, um, and we need to unify around, you know, the challenges that are before us in the moment. Like, what it, what are our biggest challenges right now, and how do we pivot from the things that we know are not working that we just keep going back to, like, you know, and uh, and I think that if uh, if we get leadership in Congress and leadership in the White House that can do that, um, I think that's some 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 folks that. I mean, Epic's going to work with with. Uh, I mean, we're going to meet policymakers with where they are. So that's something for the voters to 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 demand out of their politicians and bring to Washington. But I think that 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 would be that would be a really encouraging thing that would be great for the country. Yeah. 
All right, Paul. I don't think you're a nerd at all. I think you're actually kind of cool. Man. What can I say? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I would have loved if we were in college together. I would have called yeah. you a nerd. I'd have hung out with you and listened, <laughs> Thank you. listened and learned from you. So yeah. thanks for your time today. Thanks appreciate so much. It. I appreciate it. Thanks yeah, so much. You bet. Out. You bet. All right. Well, this is this is something that Americans have to solve. We've done it for far too long. We've allowed politicians to bicker and argue and not solve the problems of the day. And it's important that we demand as citizens, and that's, of course, what Americans for Prosperity is all about, is putting that grassroots pressure on our leaders uh, to change these policies. We've got to get our fiscal house in order uh, in Congress, at the White House, and for the United States of America and for the people and the citizens of the United States. It's been great talking to Paul. Thank you for joining us. Remember, liberty and freedom, they're so precious. We always can never forget how precious we that, that gift is that we've been given. Go out there, fight for liberty, fight for freedom. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.